Well, welcome as we uh, start another day uh, in the Word of God. Hope you've got your Bibles ready to go as we continue this journey through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And as a reminder, if you've not had a chance to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards, links are all in the description below. Let's like, comment, subscribe and share all uh, across all these platforms so that many people can understand the truth of the word of God and rightly divide it for themselves through the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're continuing our journey through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be starting at verse 5 today. And uh, this is a really uh, important opportunity for us. Now, if you've, if you've not watched the previous uh, videos on uh, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, I encourage you to please watch them. Uh, this is a tough one to just jump right in the middle of. So, uh, you know, whenever I'm teaching on a certain book, it's always good if you can go back to the beginning of the book, uh, if you're just jumping in rather than trying to start at a certain particular place, because it's always good to have a context. So let's start today at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Okay, now, he, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about these things that I just talked about in verses 1 to 4. So in other words, what he outlined in verses 1 to 4 is what he spoke verbally to them when he was in Thessalonica setting up the church. Remember, Paul sets up the church in Thessalonica. He's only there for a few weeks, gets run out of town, gets some uh, a good report only a few months later from, from Timothy and Silas. It's going well. They've got a few questions. He writes 1 Thessalonians. They come back. They go, yep, they got 1 Thessalonians, but they've got some questions from it. So we've got to make sure that we, you know, we, we, we don't get too off track. So then he writes 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and so as he's writing 2 Thessalonians, he's like, hey, I'm not telling you anything I didn't say to you when I was with you. So this is what we know Paul was teaching them in uh, in word. Um, how amazing that Paul thought it very important to teach these brand new Christians about biblical prophecy within weeks of them being saved. And not only that, but teaching them in incredible detail. Now, I, I do love this statement. Do not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things. Uh, that's a reminder to me as a Christ follower. How many times do I ever say to God, uh, about something and then God's saying to me, um, pretty sure I've told you that already. It's in my word. Um, I, I think God says to us a lot, do you not remember Philippians 4? Like, you know, when you're telling me that you can't do anything and you've forgotten that I said you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm pretty sure I'll put that in there. Um, I, I think there's, there, there's, a, there's a lot of times when we could say, do you not remember? Verse 6. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Now, he's talking here about the, 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 the man of sin. Um, now, for now, he's saying to the church in Thessalonica, the man of sin is being restrained. And, and the principle of their working is now present. In other words, uh, Satan and the man of sin working together, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This is what he's about to talk about in verse 7. Uh, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he, capital H, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
Now, um, at the right time, the Holy Spirit, he's the one who restrains Satan and the man of sin. Uh, he's going to be taken out of their way. Now, it, it's not that the Holy Spirit's going to leave the earth during the Great Tribulation. He's going to be present on the earth during the Great Tribulation. How do we know that? Because many people are going to be saved during the Great Tribulation. They're going to, they're going to serve God during this, this, this time. Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 15. There will be an opportunity for people. If, if, if somebody has rejected Jesus, the rapture comes, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, 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 oh. I, I, need, I, do it, I need to accept, then you have an opportunity in that time. But the Bible's clear, and I'm not going to teach uh, in this particular s session uh, until I get to further Bible verses when I start teaching about Revelation. Um, but, but just to sum it up, the only way that you'll be able to accept the, the, the gift of salvation in that tribulation t period will be to die for your faith or make it until the end of the seven years. That's it. That's, all, that, that's the only way it's going to happen. Um, now, that means that the only way you can be pointed to Jesus is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is going to be active during the tribulation. Uh, people cannot be saved without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is only taken out of the way. He's not removed. Now, uh, some people see this as, an, as the end of a dispensation of a certain era. Um, Robert L. Thomas said this, the special presence of the Holy Spirit as the indweller of saints will terminate abruptly at the parousia. What is that? That's the coming of Jesus, the rapture. As, and it will, it will terminate abruptly at, at the coming of Jesus as it began abruptly on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Once the body of Christ has been caught away to heaven, the Holy Spirit's ministry will revert back to what he did for believers during the Old Testament period. Now, let me just explain what that means. In the purposes, the eternal purposes of God, Jesus came back, born of Mary. He was rejected by his, the people he came back for. The church was established. What is the church? The body of Christ. What Paul talks about all through the New Testament. The church has a responsibility that is covered in parentheses. The parentheses start when Jesus uh, ascended into heaven and they will finish when Jesus comes back at the time of the rapture and that is the purposes of the church. It also will be the end of the purposes of the Holy Spirit in the church. Why? Because the church will be raptured, it won't be here. So the Holy Spirit won't need to continue his purposes for the church because the church will not be here. So what does that mean? That means that the, the Holy Spirit will go back to what he was doing previous in the Old Testament and allowing people to be convicted of their need for Jesus post-Jesus coming as a child. Now, the, the, I know that's a little confusing, but I want you to understand that this, this is all to allow us to understand about what it means that the Holy Spirit, as the restrainer, will be taken away so that the man of sin can then be revealed. Now, um, the mystery of lawlessness, which is already at work, the, this, this principle of evil is already present in the world but it will ultimately be unveiled in the man of sin. 
But he doesn't, the man of sin doesn't introduce a new kind of wickedness into the world, only an intensity of prior wickedness. And right now, this lawlessness is a mystery. That, that's what the Bible says. That, that's, that, what is it? That means it can only be seen and understood by revelation. Otherwise, it's hidden. Uh, Matthew Poole. It is not open sin and wickedness, but dissembled piety, specious errors, wickedness under a form of godliness, cunningly managed, that is here meant. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Paul states two certain facts about the man of sin who is here called the lawless one. Firstly, uh, he will be revealed when the Holy Spirit removes his restraint. Secondly, it's certain that the, the lawless one will be destroyed by the mere brightness of Jesus at his coming, at the end of that tribulation period. Now, Paul probably has Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4 in mind, uh, when Isaiah said, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The Isaiah passage refers to the Lord, to Yahweh, but Paul freely uses it of Jesus, recognizing again Jesus as Yahweh, as God, as part of the Trinity. And whoever the Son of Man is, he has not had his career yet. We know this because at the end of his career, he's destroyed by Jesus Christ himself. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. The Antichrist is going to come with power, with signs, lying wonders. But all of this is according to the working of Satan. And that's what's described in Revelation chapter 13. Let me read it for you. Revelation 13, uh, 13 to 17. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell. Remember, Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That, that's what's going to happen when we are not here. That's after the rapture, okay? You and I are not going to be faced with whether we're going to take the mark of the beast or not. Uh, if, if someone has spiritual powers, they can perform signs and wonders. That's not enough to prove that they are from God. Satan can perform his own wonderful works and all those kind of things through deception and his own resources of power granted to him by God. But remember, he can only ever counterfeit. He can never create anything. But he wants to give the impression that he can. Verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. 
And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they believe that they should believe the lie. The deception can only take root in those who do not receive the love of the truth. These people are ready for the deception of the Antichrist because they want a lie. Okay, And God's going to send them a strong delusion. Uh, God will send them. In the end, the Antichrist is actually only God's messenger. God has a judgment to bring, and he will send a strong delusion through the Antichrist. God is not going to force this delusion on anyone. He's, but those who do not receive the love of truth will receive this strong delusion. Matthew Poole, they were first deluded, which was their sin, and God sends them strong delusion, and that is their punishment, that they should believe the lie. God sends them the lie. Now, it's not just any lie, it's the lie. And what is the lie? It's the lie that has enthralled the human race since Adam, the lie that God is actually not God, and that we, as humans, can be, or we are already, little g, gods. James Moffat, his point is that the last pseudo-Messiah or Antichrist will embody all that is profane and blasphemous, every conceivable element of impiety, and that instead of being repudiated, he will be welcomed. Uh, that's sad, really, isn't it? It's, it's sad. That all they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Understand, please, that all of this is about only affecting people who have not accepted the free gift of salvation as truth, not doing anything. Nobody can get upset and say, well, if I had known that, I would have done it. No, all you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth. That's the truth. What, what truth? That truth. See, as God gives rebellious men and women the lie that they, deserve, the, the, they desire, in other words, they've rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, raptures the church. Now they're in a time of great tribulation. The Antichrist is there. So they have rejected the truth. They want to believe the lie that this guy's the savior. That's what they want. Um, and when God gives rebellious man the lie that he desires, it's out of God's own generosity. Um, oh, sorry, it's not out of God's own generosity. <laughs> um, instead, what it shows is it shows God's righteous judgment on those who reject the truth. Romans 1 points out that in judgment, God may give up somebody to the depravity of their own heart to their own pleasure in being not right with God, unrighteousness. Leon Morris, they think that people, they, talking about people who say, I, I'm, I'm not into all that Jesus stuff. I'm just rejecting, direct, I don't believe in God. I'm just, I, I, just, I just totally reject the whole notion of God and Jesus. They think that they are acting in defiance of God, but in the end, they find that those very acts in which they express their defiance were the vehicle of their own punishment. To me, that's, that's very, very sad. Okay, uh, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks 
to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul repeats the idea from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, that he was obligated to give God thanks for the work that he'd done in the church in Thessalonica. And, and he says, brethren, you are beloved by the Lord. Paul is, is he's first thankful that they are blessed and beloved by the Lord. God's love for us is the primary motivation for all of his work in us and through us. Never forget that. God, from the beginning, chose you and I for salvation. He has chosen everybody. It's up to us whether we choose him back. Paul praised the sovereign choice of God in bringing the Thessalonians to salvation, uh, saying it was from the beginning. Before they chose God, he chose them. And he chose them for salvation through sanctification, being set apart. And he's chosen all of us. F.B. Meyer said about this, from the beginning, who shall compute the contents of the vast unknown abyss, which is comprehended in that phrase. The beginning of creation was preceded by the anticipation of redemption and the love of God to all who were one with Christ. It's mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Now, let's talk about salvation through sanctification because the two go together. Those who claim to be chosen, in other words, responded, saved. People who say they're saved. Yep, I'm saved. I, I love Jesus. Uh, but they lack the evidence of sanctification. In other words, of separation from the world and separated to God. I, I think that they're on ground that's pretty shaky. Uh, I agree with David Grizzik when he says that. Uh, we can't see if a person is saved, when but I don't, I, you know, you ever, I don't know if they're saved or not. But I tell you what, you can see in somebody is whether they're sanctified. You can see whether somebody's sanctified, set apart from the world, and set apart to God. You can observe that with your own eyes. Spurgeon said this about this exact verse: Had it been possible for you to have had salvation without sanctification and being set apart, it would have been a curse to you instead of a blessing. If you could be saved from the consequences of sin, but not from the sin itself and its power and pollution, then it would be no blessing to you at all. But by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God's work of, uh, God's work of sanctification uses two great forces, the power of the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth of the Word of God. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are essential to our sanctification. You and I cannot be set apart from the world and set apart to God without the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word. Verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The call for this salvation comes through the gospel message, the good news that Paul preached, that uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, you, don't want to know what, you want to know what we preach? We preach Christ and him crucified. And the gospel that will enable us to obtain the glory of Jesus. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same glory that John wrote in 1 John 3 verse Two, let me read it to you. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's what we shall be. All of a sudden, we'll be like, oh, that's what I'm like. Oh, I've become like 
who God wants me to become. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus. So let's move on to verse 15. Uh, therefore, we're getting, we're getting to the end of this here. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle, this letter. Therefore, more means that Paul wants to consider all the things that he's just written up to this point. And in this letter, he has given very compelling reasons why Christians must stand fast and must not be moved. David Guzik said, number one, stand fast because of the current distress, the persecutions and tribulation described in, in chapter 1, verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians. Stand fast because of the coming judgment of this world in flaming fire taking vengeance, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. Stand fast because of the strength of coming deception, all power, signs, and lying wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. Stand fast because of our glorious destiny, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Stand fast. The command to stand fast implies a, a actual location. There's a place to stand. And this tells us what Christians must stand fast on and upon. They must keep standing on God's word, delivered. And, and we are constantly being delivered by the authoritative word of God. It's the word of the apostles. It's the word of the prophets. It's the word. It's the letters of the apostles, these epistles that we have, these letters. And, and we have to understand that there are traditions that we need to follow, but it's not the traditions of man. It's the traditions of God. The Bible recognizes that, there, that traditions can be dangerous. They can be a dangerous feature of religious systems. In Matthew 15, Je Jesus was confronted about washing his hands. Aren't, aren't you going to wash your hands? He's like, hey, listen, you haven't even commit the, met, kept the commandments of honor your mother and father, and you're worried about me washing my hands? Hey, listen, it's not what goes into somebody that matters. It's what comes out. So he rebuked that tradition of man. Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he said, beware of the traditions of man. Okay, Make sure that the traditions of man are actually the traditions of Christ. And if they're not, then don't follow them. They have no power over you. Paul had in mind here when he's talking about the traditions, stand fast and hold the traditions. The traditions he was telling them to hold fast to were the ones that were preserved for us in the record of the New Testament. That's what he's talking about in these letters that I am writing. Uh, the, the, Adam Clark talks about this. He said, the word paradoses which we render tradition, signifies anything delivered in the way of teaching. And here most obviously means the doctrines delivered by the apostle to the Thessalonians, whether in his preaching, private conversation, or by these letters. David Guzik, it is only this anchor of God's word that can enable us to stand fast under the weight of our present tribulation and the weight of our coming glory. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Okay, Spurgeon preached five sermons just on these two verses. Uh, before, think that, that there's so much in them in other words. Paul, before Paul asked God to do something specific 
for the Thessalonians. He remembered what God had already done for them. See, God had loved them. He had given them everlasting consolation uh, and good hope by grace. And we must remember that in our, in our constant intercession and the requests that we make to God, we, we have to make sure that we remember God's past faithfulness and his present current blessing as we're asking and requesting and petitioning for things for the future. Uh, his faithfulness in the past is a promise to us of his faithfulness in the future. Spurgeon said, God has given us much and all his past gifts and pleas for more gifts. Men do not plead so. The beggar in the street cannot say, give me a penny today because you gave me one yesterday. Else we might reply, that is the reason why I should not give you any more. But when dealing with God, this is a good idea. Comfort, may this comfort your hearts and establish you. You and I, just like the church in Thessalonica, have the opportunity to be comforted and to be established. Paul asked God to do two things in the Thessalonian Christians. Firstly, he wanted God to comfort their hearts. Secondly, he said that he wanted God to establish them in every good work and word. Both, both. And this prayer for comfort and continued testimony and for the work for Jesus is very fitting in light of the, the very special needs of believers who are under pressure and under persecution. And this prayer in these last couple of verses is, is full of very important suggestions for us to remember. Okay, It suggests for us to remember Jesus is ours. God is our Father. God has loved us. God has given us a lot. We already have everlasting consolation. And we already have access to grace. And it's all through grace. This is what we're meant to be established on. Spurgeon, I believe in an established church. Not established by acts of parliament or government, but established by the purpose and the presence of God in the midst of it. In every good work and word. This, this is where comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Uh, Spurgeon, why shouldn't he have the last word today? I mean, <laughs> so many great quotes. Some Christian people think that word should be everything and work nothing. But the scriptures are not of their mind. These professors speak a great deal about what they will do, talk a great deal about what other people ought to do, and a great deal more about what others fail to do. And so they go on with word, 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 and nothing else but word. They never get as far as work. You and I are comforted and established in our word and our work. Our work is not what saves us. It is the work of Jesus on the cross that saves us. After we accept the gift of salvation, we have a work to do, which establishes us in who we are in Christ, which is fulfilling the commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Paul, Remember what Paul said to the church in, Thess in Thessalonica. I don't want you to be ignorant of when this is all going to wrap up. Why? He wanted them to understand, he wants you and I to understand that there's an end coming 
And in that time, from when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, then Paul says one time, the end's coming one time. In that time, you and I have a job to work to do. There is work for us to do and it's what establishes us. It doesn't save us. It comforts us and establishes us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that we would observe today that we are to stand fast and work. And I pray, Lord, that we would stand fast in the, in the face of persecution, tribulation, whatever it is that we're in the middle of, stand fast and work. Do what you've called us to do. I pray that every person watching this, Lord, right now would understand that when they're like, I don't know what to do, that they would understand that, that the calling is very simple. It's to listen to the prompts of the Holy Spirit in the little conversations of every day, in every chance meeting, in every so-called coincidence, that God, that whomever they are with, whomever they are speaking with, that God, they would look for the opportunity to share the goodness of Jesus Christ, the message of God, the hope and the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ in every single opportunity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.